thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. This is the Fighter Pilot Podcast, Episode 117. This week, U.S. Air Force C-17 Globemaster III Weapons School graduate and demonstration pilot Courtney Vitt joins us to discuss the strategic and tactical Boeing cargo plane better known affectionately as the Moose. Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. Hello and welcome to the show. That's right, I am your host, Vincent Aiello, call sign Jello. And call sign Voodoo will be along shortly to help us understand the Boeing C-17 Globemaster III. But first, you know the drill. Some small talk, a couple quick announcements and listener questions, and then we'll get to it. First off, I hope everyone's doing well. Certainly been an interesting summer for me, to put it mildly. More on that in a moment. But first, I just want to remind everyone of the many platforms where you can engage with us here at the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Of course, we have a YouTube channel, Twitter account, Instagram page, but we're really active on Facebook where we feature various enthusiast groups for military aviation photography and scale models, even a trading post where you can buy and sell military aviation paraphernalia. And we have groups for aspiring military aviators, including a group just for our Australian friends. So go check that out. But really, Patreon is the place to be. As a benefit of supporting your favorite podcast on Patreon, you also enjoy benefits from early episode access to exclusive audio and video content. We have merchandise discounts from time to time, monthly Zoom meetups. At the highest tiers, you get merchandise and also monthly one-on-one calls with yours truly, which I really enjoy and I think the Patreons do as well. So check that out, patreon.com slash podcast. And for those of you who have been supporters for a while, number one, thanks very much. But number two, watch for changes later this summer. We've got some ideas, going to yeah, just rejigger things a little bit and uh, yeah, hopefully keep it fresh. All right, let's see what's going on. A couple days ago, we released a bonus episode on Tiger Cruises, which was also a tribute to my fallen brother, Rocky. As you know, he passed away in June due to uh, injuries sustained in a motorcycle accident. We're still recovering from that. And I can't tell you how the celebration of life went yet, because as I record this, we haven't had it. But the bonus episode there on Tiger Cruises has been a big hit already. And just a couple things. Number one, I guess I probably forgot to mention that this was a pre-COVID activity. Needless to say, some carriers are going out now and not even pulling into port, let alone having Tigers come on board. So we were glad for the opportunity when we had it. Of course, you heard a lot of bantering back and forth between me and my two brothers, and towards the end, you might have heard them giving me a hard time about Navy F-16s. You might remember if you follow us on social media that in 2019, when we recorded that, 
we would post videos or pictures and say Navy F-16s and people would say, the Navy doesn't have F-16s. And I always had to smack my forehead. In fact, at one point it led to the writing of one of our musings, which I called the art of being wrong and uh, explained that yes, indeed the Navy does have some F-16s. So that was a lot of fun. And then my brother Rocky's story at the end there about me uh, taking off and uh, going over their heads. Look, I wasn't that low. I mean, he, he had to hype it up a little bit, but yeah, I went a little bit over their heads. I don't know how low it was, but I didn't get in trouble. And uh, if he's got video of it, it couldn't have been that hard to find. I don't even know what happened in that video. I should ask his, uh, his wife there. But anyway, yeah, we had a lot of fun with that. And uh, I hope you, like I said, enjoyed that tribute. We certainly do miss him dearly. And, you know, I just want to point out that maybe on the next episode, I'll talk about the celebration if there's something remarkable to mention. But after that, I don't plan to drag it on and on. We want to get on with the healing process. You want to get on with military aviation. There's no doubt I'll miss him the rest of my life, but we're not going to change the course of the show and keep bringing it up if we can help it. All right, we have two listener questions, but they come from the same individual, Hugh Campbell. His first question is, in an aircraft with more than one crew member, a pilot, co-pilot, navigator, etc., what repercussions slash actions or difficulties might occur if a higher-ranking non-pilot officer gives a direct order which conflicts with the pilot's actions or decisions? So if you're going to say a non-pilot there, Hugh, you're really talking about a passenger. Boy, this came up a long time ago. And if I remember correctly, if it is a line officer, as we would call it in the Navy, that it means like a warfighter, a pilot, a surface warfare officer, a SEAL, but not a supply officer or a chaplain along those lines. If they direct you to, hey, we need to go land over here or you need to do this, as long as I recall it, as long as it doesn't conflict with the safety of the aircraft or all on board, then you're obliged to follow it. But if it violates any sorts of rules or the rules of engagement or just due diligence from safety, then even as a junior ranking pilot, you are authorized to ignore that order and you can settle it on the ground afterwards. But yeah, that was one of those things I remember learning about in flight school. And then in 25 years and almost 4,000 hours, it never came up. Of course, a lot of my time was in single seat jets, but I don't know of any stories where that's been an issue. Hugh's second question is, given the nature and uniqueness of aircraft, quote, attributes, are there definitive measures taken in case of an aircraft accident to ensure that the tech secrets don't end up in the wrong hands? And Hugh gives the examples of SR-71, Super Hornet, I would add to that F-22, F-35, F-117. And in fact, Hugh, you might remember when Robson was on, they talked about an F-117 crash not far from Bakersfield, where they quickly ran over and tried to command the scene so other looky-loos didn't get there and say, wait a minute, what is this? And in fact, then they had some subterfuge. I forget what kind of airplane it was, but he said they had parts of another airplane that had crashed that they strewn around, uh, strewed around, I guess, whatever, the uh, accident site to make it look like there was different, I don't know, a different airplane than it was. Now, clearly, if something crashes in the ocean, I think this was the case with an F-35 early on. Of course, we'll send out rescue ships to try to get the wreckage before any of our adversaries do. And if you are, God forbid, shot down over enemy territory, well, then they might try to either blow it up with another aircraft, or they might send special forces in to get rid of it, or they might just decide, you know what? Okay, I guess this is it. There's nothing we can do anymore. Certainly when Gary Powers was shot down in the U-2, there was issues with that. There were SR-71s that went down in different places. 
there was an F-117 that went down in Bosnia, and I, I'm told there are parts of it still in some aviation museum in Belgrade or someplace. So yeah, different things they can do, but my guess is if I were to be a fly on the wall in some of the offices or briefing rooms of uh, state versus Department of Defense and, you know, the president or whoever else, a sec def might be saying, hey, we need to blow this up. And sec state might say, no way, it's too close to this uh, mosque or something. I don't know, but not something I was involved with, but certainly Hollywood has a take on that. And uh, we've heard a little bit about it here on the show as well. So good questions, Hugh. And we don't really have any others. Plus we cleared out the phone log last time with Boat on our July 4th little intermission, which I hope you enjoyed. And yeah, that was just a good way to kind of get back at it. Boat's been covering a lot of the weight here, which is wonderful. He did tell me, by the way, I don't think he's going to have a Warbird episode in time for the end of this month. So we're going to dust off either the A3 or I've got another idea in mind. I'm not going to mention it just yet in case I don't get it, but should be good. And then as just a little extra tidbit for you, for those who are wondering about this aircraft specific podcast we're doing, well, we're not quite ready to announce it yet, but it might air on September 14th and we're going to air them every other Tuesday. And if we do every other Tuesday, that's 14 days between Tuesdays. So yeah, just uh, stand by for more announcements and uh, it should be a lot of fun. We're, We're working on it now. All right. Well, hey, it's time for the feature episode on the Boeing C-17 Globemaster 3 with Voodoo. But before we do, you know, she did such a good job with this interview that I don't really have any notes or any follow-ups. So in the interest of getting on with things going on here with family showing up today as we get ready for this weekend, which will, by the time you hear this, be in the past, I'm going to just let Voodoo take it out because uh, she did a great job. So that said, some of the cleanup we normally do, we want to thank our newest Patreon strike leads, Jason Chen and Matthew Rutch. And we have two new mission commanders, Daniel Biauke and Lowell Handy. And you might have heard Daniel's name before he promoted up from strike lead. Thanks very much. And thanks to all of our supporters. Also, we want to remind you that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of myself and my guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. So with that, let's get to the C-17 with Courtney Vitt. All right, today on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, we have our first true cargo plane, the C-17 Globemaster III, and here to help us understand it is Major Courtney Vitt, call sign Voodoo from the United States Air Force. How's it going, Voodoo? It's going really well. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Let's see, you're up in the Pacific Northwest. I'm down here in San Diego, so the same time zone, that worked out, but yeah, you were kind of a challenge to get a hold of. You've been uh, keeping pretty busy, I guess. Absolutely. I've been flying around doing a couple of air shows and then a couple of training events and exercises in the area and all over really the United States. So I've been pretty busy, but really happy to be here. Good. And then you flying still currently in the C-17 or are you doing something else? No, I am still flying in the C-17. been flying the C-17 for almost five years now. All right. Well, we'll get to the C-17, but let's start with a little bit more about you. Where are you from? Where'd you go to school and what have you done so far in the military? I am originally from Vacaville, California, grew up a military brat. From there, I went to the Air Force Academy, graduated in the class of 2011, went to pilot training at Vance Air Force Base, and then proceeded to stay at Vance Air Force Base for another couple of years and was chosen as a FAPE, which is a first assignment instructor pilot. Mm -hmm. I flew the T-1 out there, and then I transitioned into the C-17. I like to say that I got my first choice out of pilot training. It was just three years later. Because I requested to fly a C-17 up at McCord, which is in the Pacific Northwest near Seattle. And that's what I finally got stationed at. So I've been flying the C-17 up here 
since then, about five years now, and have loved it. I've gone through all of the upgrades. So I am an aircraft commander and instructor pilot. I am also an airdrop aircraft commander. So we like to affectionately call those pilots ACAD, as well as a weapons officer. I graduated from the class of 20 Alpha for that. Wow. Well, the fact that you commissioned in 2011 makes me feel old because I was already an 05 by then. <laughs> but all right. So you've been at it. Uh, let's see. I can do my own math about 10 years, right? And you said you just pinned on major? Indeed. Congratulations. All right. Thank you. Well, so the C-17. Now, first off, the Globe Master 3. I hate to admit it. I didn't realize there was a 1 and 2. Yes, it is essentially the third of its kind from its naming source, but its predecessors really didn't share its same exact mission set. We are the offspring of the C-141, so we replaced the C-141. We're kind of a cross-period between a strategic aircraft as well as a tactical aircraft. We do dirt landings and we go into austere airfields as well as move cargo across the ocean. So a little bit more like a C-5 in that platform. And then with our tactical airframe, we're a little bit more like a C-130. So we're a crossbreed. And so is that why it makes sense for the Air Force to keep all three? Because each of them has probably slightly different capabilities or maybe limitations? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we had the AC-130 on, so we haven't had, like I said, a full proper cargo plane. So this will be good. Learn a little bit about this thing. And I did get a ride once you guys gave me a lift from, I think I was in South Carolina before I mobbed over to uh, Afghanistan. So caught a ride with you guys and went up and had a chance to check out the cockpit. It actually looked really nice. It's a very spacious cockpit. We have room for two pilots to operate up front, and then we have two additional crew member seats, the left and the right. So they sit right behind the pilot and right behind the co-pilot. We can use them if we have extra air crew or people riding along can ride up there too. But it is a really awesome aircraft to fly. Our basic crew is three people. No kidding. It is a pilot, a co-pilot, and one loadmaster. Wow. And then we can fit augmented crew members. I was on a crew just recently that had up to 12 people on the orders doing different jobs. So it kind of just depends on the mission set, how many people are on board. Okay. Well, we got a little ahead. So what can you tell us about what became the C-17? In other words, not a well-asked question, but what was the requirements in the beginning for what became this aircraft? The requirements essentially from the beginning is they needed a longer range aircraft to augment the strategic airlift portion, as I kind of talked about with the C-5. Mm -hmm. But at the same point, they wanted an aircraft that could have the tactical capabilities of the C-130. They wanted something that was able to carry M1 Abrams tanks for the Army because we work specifically with the Army a lot, Mm -hmm. as well as do something that can actually replace the 141 and carry strategic cargo across the ocean or to different areas, maybe like Europe or the Middle East. So in that regard, what does the C-5 do that you can't? Is that even a fair question? In other words, I assume you can't carry it as much, but is it just that if they need something moved from one place to another, they might call a C-5 or they might call you? I'm not even sure how to ask that. That it's a great way to ask. I would almost say, what can we do that the C-5 cannot? Because that is what our mission set really is. So if they need a very big piece of cargo, say such as an aircraft or even a larger helicopter, Mm -hmm. more than likely they will put that on a C-5. But what we can do is we have a very similar lengths, like leg lengths, that we can go the same distance as a C-5, but we can also go further in country if you want to to austere airfields or airfields that could not 
allow the capabilities of the C5 because of their massive size. Yeah. So smaller airfields, shorter runways, that is the area that we can go. So instead of bringing it over on a C5 and then possibly cross-loading onto a C-130, a C-17 can take it the entire way. We also have the capability to air refuel. So our leg length then can be extended at that point. So when I was in Bagram, I remember C-5s coming in and out of there. I know a lot of the outlying fields around Afghanistan had C-17s, and I don't remember if C-5s could go elsewhere, maybe Kandahar. But So the point being is you don't need quite as maybe wide or long runways or maybe not quite as uh, thick concrete, perhaps? Exactly. The C-5 actually, because of its wheel structure, is able to land and spread its weight out differently than the C-17. So there are some places that it works better to send them than us. But what we can do is we can stop on shorter distances than they can. Okay. So those small little airfields around Afghanistan that you were talking about, those are perfect for sending C-17s and C-130s in. But then unlike a C-130, which is going to be somewhat limited in altitude and speed, once you guys get up, I'm guessing you can get a little farther, a little faster than a Hercules. Absolutely correct on that one. Cool. Talk to me about the variants. So... Our variants itself, we are just the C-17A. There is only an A model, but we have different block variants. So currently we're on block 21. Okay. And then we're looking into block 22, 23 upgrades with it. Our tech orders even have up to block 24. Right now, the common crew is flying the block 21 variant out there. So you can see we haven't been along as long as the F-16, who is way up there in blocks, but our block <laughs> variants are up there. We have extended range tanks as well. Some of our aircraft have those. Some of them don't. It helps us with those legs that we were talking about going to different locations, being allowed and able to fly in the air longer at that point. Those are additions that were added into the C-17 starting in about the early 2000s, 2001, I believe. And so are the modifications on these later blocks mainly either structural or wing and fuel or because the C-17, as I understand, IOC'd in 1995. So I have to think the cockpit is already pretty modern or have there been some upgrades for the pilots? There's definitely been upgrades for the pilots. The cockpit is one of the upgrades that I speak of right there. So any of the block upgrades usually has to do something, at least one portion of it with our mission computer will be updated or some sort of avionics upgrade will occur as well. It rarely is an actual structural upgrade for the jet. Okay. Thought I'd read something about like a bigger fuel tank or wing or something, but I'll have to go back and check that out. No, you're absolutely correct on that. That was the extended range tanks that I talked about in 2001. Yeah, that's when those were added. They definitely help our mission set immensely, but not all of the aircraft in our inventory have them. Yeah. Well, you know, over a hundred episodes, you think I'd be a better interviewer by now, but sometimes I'm thinking about what to ask you next and not actually listening. So you're <laughs> absolutely <on> good. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see. So that's variants. How about proliferation? Who else flies this besides the Air Force? The Australians fly them. We sometimes do interflies with them. Cool. Britain, Canada, we have actual exchanges with those countries, which is pretty cool. We've also seen them in India, Qatar and Kuwait have them. So you'll see them cool. out in the Middle East as well as the UAE. However, I don't see them fly those as much, but I haven't been out there for a little bit. And then some NATO from the U.S. Air Force has it. So we're kind of a little bit everywhere around the world, you could say. Are they all the same? So, for example, as I understand, an F-16 that gets sold to, say, Greece isn't going to have the same software, maybe not even some of the weapons as an F-16 back home, but as a C-17, a C-17? 
A C-17, at least by the design characteristics, is a C-17. However, I can't really speak for the avionics as much because I don't know exactly what are in these other countries' mm. avionics suites. I would imagine they are similar to ours. I know that they have very similar techniques and procedures that we do because they model a lot of their training off of our tech orders. I know that those are similar and that we have exchanges with them so we can be able to teach them. Their capabilities are a little bit different too, but that's actually a very cool part of it that we can do some interfly. I've done an interfly with the Australians before, which has been an awesome opportunity to fly some long range formation. It's just a little bit different based off of their training and what their capabilities are. Well, and keeping with the comparison with an F-16, not that they're anything alike, but like in fighters, there's a lot of stuff that's classified because it's either the missile or the technology or the tactics. And I'm just curious, this might be an awkward question, but is there anything about what you do that is classified or is a lot of it just kind of open source? I mean, I suppose there could be either some defensive things or if you are going to get into a contested field, are you guys just as protected as some of the fighter stuff or is it mostly open? I would say that you can find a lot on open source. I can't say that I have Googled as much on open source since I do have Mm -hmm. the ability to look straight in the regs or the tech orders. We do still have a portion of whether it be our tactics, techniques, or procedures, or just our basic operating emissions Mm -hmm. that are classified just to protect the mission itself or to protect our tactics, to be able to keep the aircraft safe or the mission operating and keeping going. With that kind of being said, we have our areas Something that's different with the fighters is, as you know, we don't necessarily carry weapons as they do or missiles or bombs because that is not our main mission set. But we have different tactics of how we operate the aircraft that we do keep classified because of that. And that makes sense. I probably could have figured it out myself, but this is such a foreign world to me. So not knowing what types of things. So that makes sense. No, that's a great question. Well, and so getting ahead on weapons there, we can just cover it now. So I presume, obviously, no offensive weapons, but any defensive type stuff, any expendables? So the funny thing about it is I am a weapons officer, and everybody always likes to ask, okay, you're a C-17 weapons officer. What weapons does the C-17 have? (laughs) And it's a great question, truthfully. What I like to say is that we can employ our aircraft in a specific way, and that is what I've been trained to do and trained to plan against. Mm -hmm. So no, we don't necessarily have weapons on board, but how our aircraft operates, you can call it a weapon in the inventory of the United States Air Force. There you go. How we're able to accomplish our mission, how we're able to go into countries and do specific things. Like that is the cool part of the C-17, I would say. It's a weapon system. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And you can carry a lot of weapons, right? I mean, are you allowed to carry bombs and missiles inside or is that somehow prohibited? We do actually, uh, we can do that. There are different hazardous classes that we can carry. So when those are on board, we have specific procedures that we make sure we know what class they are. It's actually a very common thing, especially downrange to do, but many platforms have that ability too. What about the, uh, parachute retarded bomb thing that comes out of the back of a C-130? You guys don't get to play with that? I wish (laughs) that would be cool. All right. So uh, that's it for weapons. Let's see. We talked about proliferation. How about looks? When you think about an aircraft, they're always designed to do the mission, duh. But, you know, sometimes they have different features that make them distinct, like a high tail or the winglets or anything else. What can you tell me about why a C-17 looks the way it does? Actually, you just mentioned one of my very favorite things. I absolutely love the winglets. (laughs) 
They're really awesome. They're a characteristic of the aircraft that makes it stand out as a C-17. Oh. It makes it a little bit more aerodynamically sound. So instead of having very long wings to be able to help with our lift, we have the winglets, which is a great aerodynamic design and allows us to have the same benefits of having longer wings, but it creates a shorter wingspan for us that allows us to get downrange into those austere fields that I was talking about. Mm -hmm. It's also very identifiable on our aircraft. You can tell our silhouette and immediately know it's a C-17 versus C-5 or a C-130 that don't have those. Yeah. I mean, in some ways it looks, dare I say, luckily we're remote here, so you can't punch me, but I mean, it does kind of look like a C5, right? A high wing, a T tail. It's very big, but obviously, like you said, the winglets. And to me, the uh, C17 just looks for its size, like the fuselage is a little, I don't know what to call it. Uh, I don't want to be insulting, but like a football, it's like very (laughs) compact kind of. (laughs) <laughs> so what I can say is that we're a wide body aircraft. Hmm. We have gear pods and high wings. What that allows us to do is it maximizes our internal cargo volume. The fuselage, as you talked about, like the slanted aft fuselage hmm. accommodates the door and the ramp that allow us to onload the cargo. The high wings that you mentioned in the winglets are designed specifically for that high lift capability and fuel capability. The wing is beefy. It maximizes the lift and the winglets reduce our induced drag while decreasing our overall footprint. We're effectively 175 foot square. Nice. The winglets have a super critical airfoil that are swept. So we have swept wings to improve the transonic performance and to give us a decent high speed capability. The massive external like blown flap. So if you ever watch the C-17 land or watch the C-17 demo, you'll watch their flaps come down to the full flaps. Those go behind the engines and allow us to use a powered lift configuration. What it does is it augments the airflow over the wings with the engine exhaust, allowing us to fly slower without falling out of the sky, if that makes sense. Yeah. So in other words, normally a wing is generating lift because it's moving through the air. But in this case, the air coming out of the engine, which is faster than the ambient air, is creating some lift for you. Exactly. How about inside the cargo? You talked about being able to carry an M1 tank. Like I remember some C5 guys once said how many hundreds of thousands of ping pong balls they could carry, (laughs) which I don't know why you'd want to carry that many, but is there any kind of buzz term for the various things you guys can carry or or maybe anything uh, that stands out that you've carried before? We can carry up to 102 jumpers and cargo payload wise, we can carry 170,000 pounds of cargo. And with that amount, we can actually put it on an airfield less than 4,000 feet long, which is really something that stands out in my mind. Yeah. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Aircore Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Aircore Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Aircore Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. 
So normally when we talk about weapons in our little aircraft series here, we talk about, again, missiles and bombs and things like that. In your case, I wonder if we could take a little side trip on the weapons school that you attended. Because again, me with my ignorance and fighter background, I think what on earth could they possibly do? So instead of asking it like that, which I suppose I just did, can you share with me, like, I understand the Air Force version of the fighter weapon school, everybody starts together, all the different types, and then you kind of go off to your own bases, and then you get back together at the end. But I wonder if you could just give us a primer on what topics you cover in the uh, C-17 weapon school. Absolutely. I would love to. So the weapon school affectionately referred to as the WIC is about five and a half months long. As you Mm -hmm. said, we go to core one, which is at Nellis in Las Vegas and do that first part together where we have academics and learn about pretty much the basics. From there, we go back to our specific weapon school. The C-17 weapon school happens to be at McCord up in the Pacific Northwest. So I was lucky enough to be my squadron that I'm in right now is right next door to it. Nice. We go there and the first part of the weapon school is all performance based. It's called maneuver theory. And during maneuver theory, you learn about the aircraft and the max envelope in which you can operate in the aircraft. So what different speeds can you operate? What are the weights you operate at? How do you really max perform the aircraft in a safe and effective way to accomplish the mission? Because you want to know the aircraft in and out to be able to see what you can put it through and how to operate it when you really need to in a dynamic environment. Mm -hmm. So you learn that for the first month. From there, you graduate more to defensive maneuvering and tactics. So that phase, DT, we like to call it is about a month long as well, a little bit more than that. And we add in the threat picture to it. So Uh, different threats that we could face, how to essentially go against them, or if we even have game against them, and just learning about the different threats that are out there. So it is a lot of studying, but also a lot of dynamic flying to practice our tactics, techniques, and procedure. mm -hmm. From there, we go into more of a deployed phase where we take all of the jets and the students and we take them to an out base for about a month and we fly at high PA fields in mountainous terrain and desert like terrain just to try to apply now the first and the second phase that we were in using in the performance of the aircraft while also using the threat knowledge that we gained putting together dynamic environments to actually simulate missions that we would do in the aircraft operationally. And then from there you bring it all together and you go to integration phase, which is back at Nellis. You work with the different aircrafts and platforms all over. It can be any fighter. It could be helicopter, bomber, C2 ISR type platforms. We work with all of them and you start speaking their language. So you already know your own language. Mm -hmm. You start teaching them what you can do and what you can bring to the fight, as well as find out how you can best assist them or what things that you need from them. So it's very much integrating. And that is really the true sign of a weapons officer, the ability to talk a different language with different platforms and understand the big picture. That's one of my favorite parts about being a weapons officer. So I can sit down with an F-16 pilot and know a little bit more about their general mission set and how to speak with them than just the modern average everyday air crew member would. It is a really cool opportunity. We plan a lot. We fly a good amount too, but our main mission as weapons officers, at least in the C-17 community is to instruct and to gain the knowledge and experience to bring it back to the crew force and then to teach. That makes sense. And I 
certainly uh, appreciate and respect, you know, everything that you go through. Cause when you wear that patch, as you said, it represents so much more the uh, humble, credible, approachable that we've heard before, as well as just being informed, like you said, on those other platforms, just for the sake of the listener who might uh, wonder when you said high PA airfields, of course, you mean pressure altitude, right? So that could be low density, either due to altitude or heat or something else, but that affects our lift. So I spent some time on the show explaining some of the jargon that you and I know so well. Thank you. Okay. Uh, let's see. How about performance? So, you know, normally we talk about how many G's and, you know, all these different things. But when you think about performance on the C-17, I don't know, tell me, like, what's the longest you've ever flown? What's the highest? Do you pull some G's at all? Or what would you say about the performance? We can go up to flight level 430. I think the longest that I have flown in a C-17 myself has been 17 and a half hours, I believe it was. Oof. And that included two AR sessions, so two air refueling sessions. I flew from Alaska down to Australia. And at the end of that mission, we did an airdrop mission, which was really cool. We brought the Army down from Alaska and then dropped them into Australia, which was awesome. It was a very cool exercise, and we partnered up with the Australian Air Force down there. Wait, you invaded Australia? I wouldn't call it that. <laughs> Not at all, especially just with a few C-17s, but it was a awesome opportunity to really show what the capabilities of the C-17 were. It was very, very cool. For the last couple months, we've been setting you up for this moment to try to get you in trouble for invading another country. So you fell right into our trap. Thank you. I hate that. But at the same time, it's very hard to invade an ally partner. <laughs> well, and they have the same airplane, so that's pretty cool. So not only were you on there for 17 hours, but you had a bunch of paratroopers that were waiting to jump as well, or you picked them up along the way somewhere? They were there the whole ride with us. Oh I have a lot of respect for them. They got on the aircraft and they had to sit there through two ocean crossings and two air refueling missions. And at the end of it, they got suited up and then jumped out of the aircraft. So utmost respect to them. My goodness. You also talked about G's. Yeah. Now, some people have the notion that heavy aircraft can't pull G's. I'd like to dispel that right now. We can sure we can pull G's. It depends on our configuration, but in a clean configuration, we're capable of better than 2.5 Gs. So it's not as much as the F-16 with their 9 Gs, but I mean, we can do something. But for a big airplane, that no, that is impressive. I mean, that's a, what, 70-ish degree angle of bank or something? Yeah. I mean, that's important. It could, but I mean, that's just flat up with 2.5 Gs. We can go straight vertical with that as well. So. Oh, wow. How about speed? What's the fastest you've ever seen, either knots or mock or whatever you use more? We can fly around a 350 knots with the aircraft itself. Mach number, it kind of depends on the altitude we're at. So when mm. we're at altitude, 0.75 Mach is an average speed that we fly most places or 0.70. It kind of just depends on our weight configuration and the altitude that we're actually at. Mm-hmm. And just thinking about a 17-hour flight, so are you augmented at that point? There's other pilots to take shifts, and then are there crew comforts, if there are, if you will? Absolutely. For that one, we had two full sets of crews that were able to fly it. So we had pilot and co-pilot. We had four all together, mm-hmm. and then we had additional loadmasters downstairs. We have crew bunks in the back as well, so two bunks. They're right on top of each other behind the cockpit, and we can take shifts sleeping in that. Sometimes you can even go down into the cargo compartment when they're 
aren't 102 jumpers in the back and you can sleep down there, but that is more of a, if we're transporting people back and forth, that's usually who sleeps downstairs. Usually the pilots or the co-pilots will just alternate in the bunks themselves. And then you have some sort of little galley or uh, other creature comforts, if you will. Absolutely. We have uh, a latrine in the aircraft, so it is one of the nicer features of the C-17, as well as an oven, a hot pot, a refrigerator. I really cannot complain about our aircraft because we have some really wonderful amenities that are provided and that make it a lot easier to do those long 17-hour legs or 13-hour nonstop on a single Mm -hmm. tank of gas. Well, and I'm sure uh, we had Rico on the show, uh, three-time MIG killer, Desert Storm, and after that, and uh, he, I think he said, flew 20 hours in an F-15. So uh, by that standard, yeah, being able to get up and have a bunk and a place to eat and relieve yourself, uh, even just stretch out, is obviously a fantastic feature compared to a fighter. Absolutely. I have the utmost respect for fighters, especially for their ocean crossings, their long legs, refueling. I don't know how they do it. And I am so impressed that they do it. (laughs) What's it like to uh, refuel in a C-17? I mean, it's different between Air Force and Navy anyway, but is it still rather difficult to hold a big airplane so close to another big airplane or is it a non-event? So I would say the bow wave of the C-17 causes a little bit of issue. Hmm. It depends on the platform that you're refueling against. The three platforms that we normally refuel against are the KC-135, the KC-46, and then the KC-10. Each of them give their own levels of difficulty. In my personal opinion, I think the 135 is a little bit more difficult to fly against just because of where their engines are located on the jet. It's a little bit smaller of an aircraft as well. So as you come up behind the aircraft, your bow wave kind of pushes into them. You have to watch that because just the slipstream of the boom where you sit behind them, it makes it a little bit more difficult. The KC-10's engines almost put you into a nice little zone right behind them that you can rock back and forth and essentially go up to the boom and stay in that general vicinity. I've uh, refueled against the KC-46 as well, and that is a dream aircraft to refuel against, at least for the C-17. It is a very stable platform. You just come right up to it. It is very, very nice. Wow. Now we're up to the part where I normally ask about strengths and weaknesses. And again, it's not a fighter. It doesn't need to be. We need cargo aircraft. But when you think about the C-17, tell me like what your favorite feature is about it. And then for weaknesses, the way I put it these days is if there was one thing that you wish they would fix and for whatever reason they haven't, what is it? So I don't know. Or you could just go with something else, but that's a start. Absolutely. One of the greatest strengths of the C-17 is our multi- performance role of the aircraft. When I say multi-role, I mean the fact that we are strategic. We can go and take cargo from the United States over to different countries or just around the United States. We have those long legs that uh, enable us to do that. And the cargo that we take can be anything from helicopters. We can be a flying hospital and take emergency patients to different places. Those are some of the most rewarding missions to be able to Mm. take a critically injured person and bring them to a safe area where they can get the care that they need. We can airdrop, do humanitarian relief to places that you can't necessarily land an aircraft, but we can carry the things that need to be like taken to that location and then essentially open up the back and let them out, which is an amazing opportunity to just have that ability to reach all places in the globe. I guess that's one of the reasons they might call us the globe master in that sense. <laughs> the weaknesses, 
I really wish the entire crew set, the air crew of the C-17 had the capability to fly all of the missions. It's hard because we are both strategic and tactical. So therefore we have to train for everything. Not all of our crew force is airdrop. It's a specialty mission that's only assigned to some of the bases. It's almost like driving a sports car without actually fully driving the sports car to its max performance. That's how I look at being an airdrop pilot. I'm able to open the back and see a different side of the C-17's capabilities that some of my brethren at different bases don't get to participate in. And maybe they're okay with that, but I just think it's such a cool aspect of our aircraft. Well, if we can real quick, what's different about it? So for starters, is the C-17 pressurized? I assume it is. So then you have to, what, obviously slow down. You have to get to the right altitude, to the right spot. Maybe you have to do pressurize. But what makes that particular mission so different? So you just mentioned a lot of it right there. Yeah, I'm a quick learner. Very much so. (laughs) There is portions of it that you need to. So you're trying to get usually a specific spot in a specific time. And we like to call it time over target. And in order to do that, you usually work it backwards. Sure. And you figure out, all right, what airspeed do I need to do this airdrop at? And it might vary from 130 knots, which is normally our personnel airdrop speed, to 145, which might be heavy equipment type speeds. And so you're like, okay, I need to slow down to that airspeed over this location. It takes this long to do that. So you're working the math backwards at that point. Most of it's very simple math. Hmm. And then you have to figure out what altitudes you're going to be at based off of what parachute is dropping, whatever you may be dropping. And then work that into the equation as well. We're usually below 10,000 unless we're doing a higher altitude drop. And a higher altitude drop is usually personnel if we're going to do that. And it's specialized train personnel. So you're working all of those things backwards and you're trying to get that time over target. And the cool part about airdrop, and I think this is probably why I like it the most, is that airdrop pilots are formation qualified pilots. And so you usually have at least one other jet up there with you, which makes it a lot more fun. Just being Mm. able to work with another jet, having them in the equation, getting to fly formation with two massively huge aircraft within 2000 feet of each other at times. That is the real cool part. And just the mutual support that you can provide to one another as well. Do you guys fly with night vision goggles? We do. Cool. So is there a night formation? Absolutely. Check it out. All right. So some of the high altitude stuff, I I heard you kind of dancing around it, but I imagine like maybe special forces, high altitude, whether they're releasing uh, or what do they call it? Hi-ho or halo or something like that. But is that also part of the tactics? It is part of the mission facet as well. And we actually train to that. So that's one of the aspects that we train to, whether we have personnel on board, sometimes we go out and train just with ourselves, not having any users in the back and depressurize the aircraft, get to those higher altitudes, have to wear oxygen masks while we're at higher altitudes, just to be able to perform that capability and to be proficient at performing a capability. So each time you did mention it before, we are a pressurized aircraft. And every time we do open up the back, we need to make sure that the aircraft itself is not pressurized. So that is especially uh, a little bit more difficult at those higher altitudes because we have a little bit more checklist to run then. Well, and you got to communicate with everybody, but I assume there's also some fail safes in there. So you don't just suddenly open the door when you are pressurized. I'm, I'm guessing there's <laughs> some uh, fail safes in there, but um, what about, uh, what about bringing fallen soldiers home? I mean, that obviously you carry whatever needs to be carried, but that's gotta be a different mission. And I wonder if you've ever had a chance to do that. 
that is one of the most humbling missions there is out there. I talked about bringing home critically injured patients, but mm-hmm. fallen heroes, fallen warriors, we carry specifically, usually it's from a different country over, but sometimes you get stateside ones as well. It's a very humbling experience. I have not had the honor myself of participating in one. I'm sure my time will come at some point that I will be asked to carry a fallen warrior or brethren, but it's hard to describe the feeling and the honor that you have being able to have that mission set, to have the trust of the family, Mm -hmm. the trust of the military, to be able to bring that person where they need to go and to put them to rest. It is humbling is literally the only word that I can describe that with. Oh, I totally agree. I had a chance to do that in my civilian capacity as an airline pilot. I was actually thrilled because I thought this is an honor and I was wanting to make the PA announcement and I was trying to be a little coy about it with a captain and he ended up doing it. But I'd thought about what I wanted to say and try to make everyone impressed. But obviously they see the the accompanying soldier there or whatever service member in, in the full dress. And it's just one of those things, obviously you don't wish for it, but obviously it does happen quite a bit, at least in the last 25 years in the war on terror. So uh, just to be able to do that. When you do that, though, on a C-17, do you get a certain call sign, I think, too? Is that right? The call sign varies, but you do do certain custom and courtesies. Okay. So how they load the individual onto the aircraft, where they sit, the flag that's draped over, usually the casket, if there is one, mm-hmm. how they're taking off the aircraft. There are specific things that the crew does just to pay homage and tribute to that individual or the group of individuals, if it might be. Yeah. Well, Voodoo, where has the listening public seen the C-17? Obviously, you see it every day, but not everybody lives in this world. So is it at air shows? Is it in the news? Is it in movies? Where have we seen this? First off, probably have seen it in different movies. We were in Fast and Furious 7, Man of Steel, American Sniper. One of the big ones is Transformers. The C-17 drops Optimus Prime. That is one of my favorite moments of that movie. It also does fingertip formation, which is not something that we normally do. So I don't know how they filmed that. Mission Impossible, Tom Cruise does actual Halo out of the C-17. Like that was him. He was the one jumping and he practiced multiple times, which is really cool. There is also three C-17 demo teams out there. So there is the C-17 West Coast demo. They are doing a lot of the air shows this year. And I can put a plug in for them because I'm actually a member of that team. And they are close and near and dear to my heart. It is an awesome opportunity to watch some of the performance capabilities of the C-17, as well as their ability to do airdrop. We have dropped a couple of the different parachute teams out there at different air shows. So it is a really cool demo to watch. There's also the East Coast demo team. Then there's C-17 demo team out in Hickam as well. And they do a, a couple international shows. So if you've ever watched the demo profile, all three of us do the same profile. It's just a different team. And the cool part about it is that the team members for the C-17 demo teams, that is not their primary job to be a demo pilot. You'll see that with like the F-16 or the F-22 demo team. That is their primary duty for Mm. that duration. For us, it is more of an additional duty to be on the demo team. You could have a pilot that's flying that demo that, no kidding, was in the Middle East or Europe the week prior doing a operational mission. And then this week they're flying in an air show doing that demo. And then next week they might be somewhere else in the world or flying a training mission. So it's a really cool aspect that 
our demo pilots are actually operationally ready to go fight and have been as well as able to do this and sit down with the public and really show off our capabilities. Well, so let me continue to play the protagonist here because answer me this. I mean, okay, the, hey, the C-17 from the left, C-17 from the right. I mean, <laughs> what are you doing at the air show? And I don't mean to sound as bad as I feel like I'm sounding, but what does the display look like? No, that's awesome. Uh, so the display starts out usually if we're at an airfield that actually has a runway as opposed to a water demonstration, mm-hmm. we will take off and do a max perform climb out usually leveling off somewhere around a thousand feet from that. We will come back around and do a pitch out, come back over the crowd around 310 knots. And that will be our high speed pass. And what it's supposed to show is how quiet the C-17 can be at a higher rate speed. Ah. We'll do another pitch out and then drop down. We'll be at our lowest around 500 feet over the runway. And we'll do a low speed pass where we will show our full configuration with full flaps and gear out Mm -hmm. to show one, what it looks like. And then two, how loud that can be from there. We will go back out, do another pitch out, come inbound. We'll do a 360 over the field, pretty much to show our turn radius and then come back in for our landing. I think the landing is probably one of the coolest parts about it because we will land and do a short field landing, mm-hmm. max performance at landing, as well as immediately go into a straight backing. So we will stop the aircraft and just start moving backwards, which is really cool to see. Wow. How do you do that? Is there a little camera up there or does the loadmaster lower the ramp and he's talking to you or? So usually camera, man, you should tell them about that would be wonderful. <laughs> the loadmaster opens the troop doors or the ramp. They can look out and the loadmaster is the one that really tells us the left and right because we can't mm-hmm. see out the back and then we control the speed at which we are backed with. Yeah. Well, come on, cameras or whoever's in charge of the budget. Let's get some cameras in there. No kidding, right? All right. (laughs) All right, Voodoo. Well, this is a lot of fun, and I'm certainly learning a lot. And what have I not asked you about the C-17? Actually, let me ask you this. Any talk of either a C-17B or a KC-17? Truthfully, I have not heard either of those things. I think probably we'll stick with the C-17A and just continue the block upgrades. A KC-C-17, let's see. I think the KC-46 uh, probably has it covered for us for a while. Yeah. And if we were to add an actual boom to it, I'm not sure where that would go because the ramp's right there. Well, I'm thinking Navy style here. Come on. You could put a couple wingtip warp pods, I think they call them, right? And Navy Marines could come up and get some gas. Yeah, baskets. <laughs> that would be a cool opportunity, but I haven't heard talk of that yet. Yeah, that's not going to happen. All right. How about an AC-17? That would be awesome. I am fully in support of that, but I haven't heard them talk about that one either. (laughs) All right. Well, then what have I not asked you about the C-17 that everyone listening needs to know? There is one thing. So the C-17 is called the Moose. Oh. I was very confused at first when I started flying the aircraft because I was like, why is it called the Moose? It's called the Moose because as the aircraft is being refueled on the ground, the wing bladders in the wings actually create a moose type call as they're deflating and inflating. So they call it the moose because of that. So in Alaska, you had to be careful, right? Because, uh, well, anyway, let me not go down that path. Oh, that's hilarious. The moose. Well, every Air Force airplane needs to have a nickname, I feel like. Absolutely. I titled our F-16 episode, The Fighting Falcon, and people took exception. Like, no, it's the Viper. I said, well, come on. We have to be official here. So 
My dad was an F-16 pilot, so I grew up in the era that it was the Fighting Falcon and then switched to the Viper, which has been awesome both ways. But I agree because at first I was very confused when it started being called the Viper as well. And if you ever do call it the Globemaster, I'm guessing nobody bothers with the three. That's just the technical jargon. It is the technical jargon, just like it's the Fighting Falcon. The Moose is its nickname. All right. Well, Voodoo, this has been a lot of fun. What's the future hold for you? So you're 10 years in, you're going to go another 10 and keep playing the game or more for that matter? I'm having fun so far. I pretty much said that as long as I'm having fun and feel like I'm making a difference out there, having a positive impact on the community that I'm in or the Air Force in general, that I'd stick around. So, so far I've been able to do that and I've been enjoying it. Well, I'm glad to have you on the show. We get a lot of questions for, hey, when are you going to have a female fighter pilot? Or, you know, when are you going to talk about that? And I'm never sure what to say because, I don't know, you tell me, do we need to have a separate show for females in military aviation? It's funny that you talk about that. We've been having a discussion lately. Truthfully, I think it's just an opportunity that we have to be out there. Some people ask, is it cool? Do you like to emphasize the fact that you are a female in this community when there's not a lot of you? Mm-hmm. I think it's awesome just to show that we are here, especially air shows. I get small, young little girls coming up to me and their moms or their dads saying, Hey, look, she's a pilot. You could be that too. I think that is a cool opportunity, but as far as the career field itself, I feel no different than the guy standing next to me. And truthfully, it's all about how you fly the jet and how well you operate and do your mission. Like that is what I am respected or known for. And not necessarily the fact that I am a woman doing this in this career. Good. Yeah. And that's as you would hope it would be. And of course, on the news and social media, of course, they always try to turn everything else into something for a sensation. But I think your first point is right on, right? We tend to look for people like us that we can look up to. If you ever go on a trip somewhere overseas, right? If you see another group of Americans, you kind of tend to cluster next to them. Or if you are doing anything, there's people that will kind of seek each other out. And so, yeah, you're probably an inspiration for young girls who maybe still, I mean, hopefully everybody knows by now you can do it, but maybe some young girls don't. That's what I would like to be there for young girls, young guys. It doesn't really matter, but just to say that you can do something and try to mentor them along the way. Mm -hmm. I've had a lot of great opportunity in my life to be mentored by different pilots or just different individuals in general. It's because of them that where I'm at, one of them was actually the reason I had the ability to fly and even got my private pilot's license was the Leroy Homer Foundation. Mm. Leroy flew the 141 back in the day. He was the co-pilot on flight 93. And when he passed during 9-11, his wife made a scholarship for his memory. And I was one of the recipients back in high school. So just having that opportunity and an organization that kind of looked after me after that and helped me get my private pilot's license is the reason that I'm here today. So to have the ability to pass that on or to help future generations of pilots, like that is what I am all about. Well, you certainly just did that for the last hour or so that we've been sitting here chatting about the C-17. So I want to thank you for that and your 10 years of service and everything you're doing. We'll have to keep in touch because people, I'm sure, will want to know more. And uh, this has just been a lot of fun. So our last question, of course, is how did someone come up with voodoo for Courtney Vitt? Usually you're told over a uh, beer mm-hmm. for those, but I can give you at least a little hint into it that I got voodoo based off of a little bit of superstition and a little bit of the fact that I was in the wick during a portion of COVID. And during my WIC class, it seemed like everything was going wrong so much so that we had the possible war with Iran during that portion. Our runway got a sinkhole in it. Our building literally caught on fire. 
So there was a little bit of voodoo magic surrounding my class. And since I was the uh, senior class member at that point, they put a lot of blame on me for it. (laughs) I might fly with a couple of trinkets and tokens, just like most pilots are a little bit superstitious. They might have their lucky socks or underwear. I have a few things that I carry with me that I feel keep us safe with the magic that they hold. So I got voodoo based off of some of that. Okay. Well, that's interesting because I was actually thinking it was almost too cool for a call sign, like (laughs) assassin or viper or something. It was really cool. And I was, I was very honored and humbled to get such a cool call sign because (laughs) some call signs out there, you hear them and you're like, Oh, those aren't great. But I think everybody in my class definitely got some really awesome call signs. I'm sure you played it down, right? Like, Oh, I don't want to be called that. No, it was really cool. We were all just very excited to have call signs of yeah. themselves because it's not something that is very common in the C-17 community. Yeah. You hear fighter pilots often going by their call sign, but you won't hear a lot of heavy pilots utilizing a call sign. It's just something different in the culture, but most weapons officers are named during their course. And so that is something we hold on to. And it allows just that commonality between some of the fighter brethren that mm-hmm. you share that also with them. So it was really cool being actually named during that time. All right, Voodoo. Well, I want to thank you for your time again. And I uh, really enjoyed our discussion on the C-17 Globemaster 3 today. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BBR Productions. Got a question for the show? Email us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform and check out our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. For exclusive content and to help support the show, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.